0: Hello and welcome to Gravity, a podcast on current social, political and cultural issues around the world. Today's podcast brings us to Haiti and women's issues including efforts to protect women against gender-based violence in particular. Haiti's constant political and social upheavals have contributed to the social inequity of women with inadequate laws for their protection, including from domestic violence and rape, as well as their lower social, economic, and cultural positioning in Haiti, which produces a climate in which they are vulnerable to gender-based violence and abuse. The history of Haiti is extremely tragic. From the Spanish and French conquests, which decimated the native population... To its current modern predicaments. Haiti had one of the first modern revolutions in 1789 and became one of the first modern republics in 1804. But unfortunately for Haiti, they didn't gain French recognition until 1825 and only by agreeing to pay immense reparations for the sugar and coffee export loss to the French Empire because Haiti was its cash cow. Haiti continued to pay reparations to France until 1947. Haiti was also diplomatically isolated in the Western Hemisphere as the Black Republic, in part due to severe resistance of the southern U.S. states before emancipation. Haiti also was occupied by the U.S. from 1915 until 1935 due to debt to U.S. banks. And the CIA has supported ruthless dictators in Haiti, including the Duvaliers, Papa Doc, and his son, Baby Doc. Throughout this political instability, Haiti has endured a series of stochastic natural disasters, including earthquakes and tsunamis, exacerbating its political instability. Haiti's recent history has been no less dire, with the coup d'etat in 2004, which led to mass rapes across the country, and most recently, The earthquake on January 12, 2010, which leveled the capital Port-au-Prince, killed 316,000 people and injured and displaced more, as well as causing billions in damage to the country's infrastructure and larger economy. Today, unemployment is still around 60% in Haiti, and there are over 100,000 internally displaced people living in makeshift camps with sewage and security issues, particularly for women. The situation was hardly helped by the UN, who marched in and, as a result of inadequate sanitation at their barracks, caused a cholera epidemic, which infected 650,000 Haitians with cholera and killed thousands. Further, UN soldiers in the climate of mass rape that pervaded the country after the earthquake also committed rapes of young girls and boys and liberally engaged in transactional sex, with the UN holding firm on diplomatic immunity under the 1946 Convention of the Privileges and Immunities of the UN. While the UN allowed the prosecution of UN personnel that gang-raped a 14-year-old boy, they only did so in camera, and the results have been the sentence of the abusers to one year in prison. Other organizations that came in with laurels to grace Haiti, including organizations that were specifically targeted toward the enhancement of women's status in Haiti, were somewhat reticent to include Haitian grassroots organizations in their activities and in their dialogue, leading Dominique Majolère, the leader of the National Advisory Body, the National Dialogue on Violence Against Women, which was established in 2004, to state, as quoted in Beyond Shock, that they, and I quote, want to speak for Haiti and want to speak for us. The devastation wrought by the earthquake hit women the hardest, with resultant mass rape, including throughout the camps, which had inadequate protections for their security. Additionally, women endured a severe shortage of food and many had to engage in prostitution to survive, as well as to provide physical security against other aggressors. While the Haitian justice system continues to be inadequate, both in terms of the law as well as in terms of the institutional structure, efforts are underway both to reform the law to more adequately provide protection against gender-specific violence, as well as improve the overall status of women in Haitian society. Today, I have Mina Jagnath with me, who is a legal fellow and coordinator of the Rape Accountability and Prevention Project at the Bureau des Avocats International, a Haitian organization, from May 2011 until September 2012, to further elucidate on the issues facing women in the Haitian justice system and efforts being made in the courts and on the ground to improve the status of women in Haiti. Okay, so can you just tell me a little bit about RAP?
1: I started working there in 2011. RAP, uh, the Rape Accountability and Prevention Project, is based out of the Bureau des Avocats Internationaux. And although they have a partner um, named Institute for Justice and Democracy in Haiti, which also acts as its fiscal sponsor, um, the the Bureau des Avocats Internationaux is distinctly Haitian. And... Um, and after following the earthquake, and even before that, um, it used to have legal fellows and, and legal support from American or other uh, um, foreign lawyers to provide capacity building for the lawyers there, and then also, um, you know, uh, increase access to international forums like the Inter-American Commission for Human Rights, the... Um, human rights treaty bodies in, in in at the UN and and elsewhere, and so, um, and so, I worked with um, my my direct um, boss or the director of the Bureau de Avocats Nationale, is um, Maître May Joseph, who is um, I mean he's a Haitian lawyer. Uh, he's known to be one of the most prominent human rights lawyers in Haiti, and. Um, and uh, during the course of my time there I worked with several um female Haitian attorneys in building a project, um the RIP Accountability and Prevention Project Rap and uh and also, you know, um providing them some trainings about uh international human rights forums and sort of integrating the human rights discourse into the, the local practice of law. So um so all of our cases were in for the most part, in the, the Haitian justice system, I mean, we were involved in a petition that was filed in the Inter-American Commission for Human Rights and, um, and other, um, international forums, but, but the majority of our work actually was based in Haiti with, you know, other Haitian organizations and, um, really, um, with the Haitian Lawyers,
0: what grassroots organizations did you work with? The bigger ones that we worked with was uh pour
1: Favive, the Commission Femmes Victim victimes. Victime. We worked with Favilec, Femme Victim Leve Campe. And we worked with a group of rape survivors from the early nineties. Um, they had been around for a while, they're called Konamavid and um, that the group was a group of, of women who had been targeted um, in the intervening years between 1991 and 1994 when there was a military regime in place. And, uh, and so those women um, were are primarily elderly women who um, are still active in, um, in the, the women's movement. And then, and then we worked with a number of smaller organizations that um, popped up in some of the camps that we were partnered with. Um, and uh, you know, didn't necessarily have the same sort of institutional um, grounding as these people did. Um, but were active in, in you know in their communities or in their camps.
0: As far as I understand, it wasn't just prosecution that you were involved with, but that rap. Was seeking to empower victims and even help them connect with other people, and had something called Women's Saturdays. Is that correct? Where you had sewing classes and uh, community support. Can you tell me a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah. So, um, so our rap really consisted of three main parts. One is direct legal representation. The other is advocacy at the national and international level. And then the third was capacity building and, um, you know, support for victims in Haiti through uh, grassroots groups, but then also programs at, like, as you mentioned, the BAI Women's Saturdays. And that project actually grew out of um, a desire to maintain contact with our clients, but then also to provide a space in which they could interact and support one another and also, um, learn, uh, skills that are both empowering for them, but then also, you know, something that could, they could potentially use to generate income or, you know, to, um, for some, for some practical use in the future. And so, and so when I, um, when I was there, we, we started a sewing class, which is, um, uh, taught by a very, uh, experienced, um, or seamstress, I guess. And, um, but then we also had, uh, as, as time went on, um, other victims had skills, you know, participants of the program had skills that they wanted to offer to others. So, you know, there were, um, adolescent girl, um, clients of ours who knew how to make flowers or who knew how to weave baskets out of, um, out of uh, you know uh, snack wrappers and things like that, and uh, and others who um, knew how to crochet, and so and so it was also a space where people could share their own skills with others. Um, you know, both both for the empowerment aspect, but then also uh, empowerment and community aspect, but then also you know if they um, if they wanted to use that skill uh, for their own, you know to to make products that they could sell too, we thought it it would be helpful in that way as well.
0: That would be very helpful because one of the problems to begin with was that women were always in social inequity in Haiti and when the earthquake hit, it hit them hardest because of the subject positioning. If you could tell me a little bit about the law and in particular there's a medical certificate that rape victims needed to have or did they need to have or judges demanded it and then the application and the hurdles that these women had from an institutional perspective so how the law was applied uh, and how RAP dealt with that
1: Sure Um, as it is uh, the law is quite limited um, with respect to uh, violence against women Uh, there are a whole lot of um uh crimes that are not that are not accounted for by the the penal code um rape is accounted for and it wasn't it wasn't until um 2005 that it actually uh was was classified as a crime before that a crime against a person before that it was classified as a uh, a crime against morality um and uh and so now that um now that it is classified a crime against a person the the uh, penalty or the number of years that one gets for for that crime is um, has augmented um, as you mentioned the the medical certificate is uh, a piece of evidence that is not required by law but it is in practice um, police officers and prosecutors uh, treat it as uh, an obligatory um, piece of evidence that victims need to present in order to um, approve whether, whether they have been in fact assaulted or not. I mean, it's a, it's a very complicated question because what ends up happening is that, um, you know, even if you do have a medical certificate, there, there are only a couple, um, you know.
0: A Ministry of Health Accepted hospitals, is that right? And then in rural areas, they don't have them.
1: Yeah, I mean the there, there was a um, um, an agreement that the Minister of Justice put out that you know all um, that all courts should should um, accept medical certificates that are in, that are issued by, by any medical institution, so long as it's by um, you know a, a, a registered doctor. Um, but, um, for a long time, medical certificates that were issued by other institutions were not, were not being, um, accepted. And then in the rural areas, it's even worse because there aren't, there aren't, um, facilities where women can go to for, um, post, um, rape care and the medical certificates that are issued from there are not necessarily, um, uh, you know, as detailed, or, you know, they might not issue them at all or there might not be doctors who are certified to perform the examinations required for that medical certificate. So um, in the rural areas, it's, uh, access to the, these kinds of services is very limited and um, the kind of evidence, you know, the, the ability for, for a woman to get to a place where that, um, where that examination can happen within 72 hours of the assault is, um, is, is really hard. Because oftentimes, you know, so so there's a 72 hour window during which, um, you know, the the some of the the physical evidence can be can be preserved, and um, generally, even though the the courts are technically supposed to accept medical certificates that have been um, issued beyond that, uh, the ones that are issued within that 72 hour window are ones that. I mean, in my opinion, wrongly so, um, given more weight. And, and the only reason why I say wrongly so is that I mean, yes, the the physical evidence is is preserved better in that in that seventy two hours. But um, but then there are other effects. The you know, supposedly there's a there's a psychological examination that goes along with it that should also you know be a factor in the in the medical certificate. Um, and, you know, the other reason why they ask, um, women to get the, or, or, girls even to get the medical certificate within 72 hours is also to, um, so that they could get, uh, the HIV prophylaxis and or what is colloquially called, colloquially called the, the morning after pill so that they can, they can receive right. those too, um, within, within, uh, you know, a viable period of time, and so and so that I that that seventy-two hour window for those purposes has been conflated with seventy-two hours to get the medical certificate period. Ah, available. okay. You know, and uh, and so that's that's also a problem with respect to um, the training of um, the the people in the justice system.
0: I'm sure you looked at more cases before you decided to prosecute certain cases. When you were deciding which cases to prosecute. Did you have issues with stigma associated with the males that were raped? At the BAI,
1: we have not, up until now, or at least for the time that I was there, had had any um, male victims who wanted to prosecute those cases. I know that COFAV received a few cases of... rape against boys, but um, but generally there is a lot of stigma associated with that. But just to go back to, um, to the first part of your question, uh, so the prosecution decision is made by the Parquet, or the Commissaire um, du Gouvernement, which was like the prosecutor in, um, in Port-au-Prince, and basically, I mean, we had we had filed complaints in a lot of these cases. So, so we act as the the lawyers for the victims on the the, the civil side. But in Haiti, the civil process um, marches alongside the criminal process, um, and so the the ultimate decision about whether a case goes to trial or not is in the hands of. The, the prosecutor, and then we were there to advocate and to um, accompany the victim um, through throughout the the court process, both for the criminal side and for the the civil side and so when we're at trial we we also we work together with the prosecutors to ensure that the prosecutor is following the procedure to, to ensure that the prosecutor is also you know um collecting all the evidence that that exists in the case and then also to, to help them call um, call and, and question witnesses um, such as you know an expert witness like a like a doctor or a psychologist and so in in 2012 what had happened was um, the prosecutors had decided to move forward with 22 cases of rape out of the the I think it was either 72 or maybe 76 I can't remember that couple in my head but but um, of those twenty-two, um, four were uh, the BAI's. Some of them were unrepresented victims, like victims who did not necessarily have, um, uh, you know, civil side counsel. And then, um, and then, you know, cases that were brought forward by, by other by other firms. Um, and so, uh, in out of those, out of those four, you know, as I said, we, we were able to, um, to represent the victims on the, on the civil side and, and we had won all four of those cases. And, but, but, you know, that is a very small number out of the total number of cases that we actually have. I mean, the, um, as it is right now, um, the, the courts are very, very slow in prosecuting cases. Um, and, oftentimes the ones that move forward are only the ones where the, the evidence is clear than in other cases. So practice in practice, what that ends up meaning is that the cases where, um, consent is presumed, which is, you know, for, for girls uh, under the age of, of 18, um, because that's the age of, you know, adulthood when, 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 um, um, a person could, can give consent. um, and, uh, and cases in which, um, the medical certificate showed that there was, you know, like a new tearing alignment. Um, so I, I mean, that's a bit graphic, but, but basically right. like the, in the medical certificate, there is a section that, that says whether it's been an old tearing or a new one. And, um, and you know, in, in those cases where it, it is, it is clear that there was, and also where the, where the, um, where the accused aggressor could, it could be apprehended. Those are the cases that could go forward. So, you know, out of all of the cases of rape that happens, that's a very sort of like small universe. I mean, it's still quite large, um, mm-hmm. the, the number of cases that, that do meet all that criteria. But, um, but that, that's, those are generally the cases that you see being prosecuted or, um, even if the person is, is over the age of 18, um, if if that person had not had previous sexual relations, then then the prosecutor might be inclined to move forward. So so you know I mean as I as as I mentioned before, the prosecutorial apparatus there is quite weak, and there's also a lot of um, stigma and you know pre um, uh, how do you say it? like there there's um,
0: prejudgment maybe yeah like
1: prejudgment pre. Exactly, of victims and, and it's still, um, a highly, people are still highly biased against, um, against women who've had previous sexual relations and, you know, there's a lot of, um, blaming of the victim that happens through the, the various steps of the process. And so, you know, that in and of itself is, is a deterrent for women to, to want to come forward.
0: After the earthquake, there are reports that women had food insecurity and had to basically prostitute their bodies for food and security from other people. Now, did RAP take any of these cases? I mean, was there any way in the Haitian system to look at these sex for survival cases, uh, particularly of minors? There are reports that young Mm -hmm. boys and girls were... um, Yeah, you know...
1: There are um, very few victims that would actually come forward and prosecute. So in terms of actual cases, we did not receive people, um, any cases of, of women or girls uh, complaining against an aggressor for that. But, but we did, um, you know, the women's groups, they themselves, uh, the, 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 women, the women's groups, especially those living in the camps, They highlighted that this was going on and that it, it is, it is a serious problem. Um, but that there is an intense stigma against them and they are, they are extremely reticent to come forward and actually talk about that, both because of, you know, personal feelings of shame, but then also because, you know, they, they, um, it's a source of income.
0: One thing that I've noticed in the literature is there's a lot of focus on victim empowerment or survivor empowerment and helping women in general and the social inequality there. But are there any grassroots organizations and movements that are looking to young boys that have food insecurity, that are homeless or jobless, that maybe are orphaned from the earthquake? And that have to be initiated in gangs and basically are the new rape perpetrators any grassroots organization looking to better their lives so they don't join gangs and don't commit rape and perpetrator focus
1: Yeah you know that's it's a really good question because um, because you're absolutely right you know um, it, because of the the insecurity because of the economic insecurity it is um, is easy for boys to fall into, um, groups or situations in which they themselves, um, become perpetrators. And, you know, they themselves might've been victims as well in the past, but that's not uncovered, um, in the same way as, as violence against women or girls. Um, but, uh, you know, there are a few groups. I know that Copa Vive does some work with, with boys. I mean, definitely they, they bring in, um, they try to engage the the youth uh, of the members of Kofaviv, the women members of Kofaviv, as well as um, as well as men um, in the aftermath of the earthquake. They did have a project based in Shamas in a camp that was in Shamas. Um It's not there anymore, but but they had um, they had engaged um, at least twenty five um, men in a. Um, in a training program in which they learned about violence against women and, and, uh, you know, mediation tactics and ways to, um, train other men, um, and boys around, um, around violence against women and women's rights. Um, I, um, am not so aware of, you know, large, um, initiatives to engage boys, but I know that, that there are, um, there are a number of, of, of organizations that are trying more and more to, to integrate this, this aspect into, into their work because there is a recognition that, that you know, unless you engage men and boys in, in this training as well, you can't, you won't be able to um, right. sort of change cultural attitudes towards women and girls and violence against women. So um, so it is changing, but, um, but you know, I would still say that the, that the initiatives are, are few compared to those um, directed towards women. The
0: Penal Code was changed in about 2005 to, as you were saying before, to make rape a crime against the person instead of against morality. I believe before it was more seen as a crime against honor of the family in line with patriarchal society. However, does the Penal Code cover marital rape or... Is it still deemed a wife's duty, conjugal rights, and that women have no uh, rights there, and that there is uh, still rampant uh, domestic violence going on in Haiti?
1: Yeah. And, well, um. So interestingly, it's the the provision on rape is written broadly enough to include marital rape, but in in practice, you know the the way the judges and the prosecutors look at the um at the provision it they don't they don't in practice um honor it necessarily as um as a crime and so and so we've brought cases of of marital rape but um but it's very difficult to make a case like that advance through the system because of the biases that the um officials have at 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 you know along the different stages of the, of the criminal process. Um, but, uh, I wanted to mention before that, um, in 2012, well actually in, in, you know, in fall of 2011, um, the, um, a number of different, um, organizations had come together to start, uh, working on a comprehensive uh, law on violent, violence against women, Um, that was, there was a comprehensive law and then there was a separate part, which was, um, a revision of the penal code. Um, I think the revisions to the penal code are sort of further along in the process. At this point, they haven't been passed yet, but, um, but if those revisions go through, then it would, um, greatly, um, detail and increase the, the different types of gender-based, um, violence crimes that, um, that are provided for um, in the code and um, and you know prescribe prescribe penalties for those and then the the comprehensive law on violence against women is kind of a a law to go with it, which would um, would also you know put into place a framework by which the state would have to offer services and start to create institutions to support, um, victims of gender-based violence. Um, as I said, neither of those have passed thus far. So the law still remains fairly simple. So something like domestic violence is prosecuted through the, um, assault, um, provisions and not, and not specifically, um, uh, there's no specific domestic violence, um, sort of, uh, criminal framework
0: out of the 22 rape cases that rap took in 2012 it seems that out of the cases that were reported and i I wonder if you could tell me a bit about the court's right not to report the results of a case there was one acquittal and 13 convictions and Mm -hmm. for one of the first times the court was more appreciative and interested in the expert testimony could you tell me a little bit more about that Well, for the ones that, that didn't have any reporting,
1: it's quite present at the at the um, trial itself. Um, it's difficult to tell ultimately what it, what had happened in those cases. Um, I know that in some of them, um, neither the victim nor the aggressor showed up, <laughs> so so it might have just been a sort of an unresolved case. But um, but in other in in terms of of the if we, also, the um, expert testimony. I mean, for us, we brought in a medical doctor who um, who eh, administers the section of the of the general hospital that um, that issues these medical certificates, and she was extremely helpful in both um, informing or educating. I would say the judge as well as. The audience and you know everybody in um, in the courtroom about um, the process of examination in those medical certificates, what those terms mean, um, and then also um, interpreting the medical certificate that was issued in that particular case. And and you know, I would say that it went a long way towards um, towards aiding uh, the prosecution in in making its case because. Oftentimes, what the other thing that you see in these trials is, you know, you see the the defense interpreting the medical certificate as as it likes, interpreting medical terms that that you know they're not competent to to interpret, and that ultimately um, influencing the judge or the other. So and so, you know, in order to avoid that, we wanted to ensure that you know we had we had experts to come in and testify. Um, both, you know, for the case, but then also to educate the public at large, you know, because it, at these criminal trials, I mean, the the courtroom is packed, like tons, you know, there's no, there's no standing room, even <laughs> people right. are like, you know, like peeking their heads in, like through the door kind of thing. Um, I mean, I must, I must mention that um, when it comes, if it's a minor on trial, when it comes to the minor victim testifying, they do ask, everybody to leave, but, um, but the rest of the trial is, um, is open to the public and and public pays great attention to it. And so we also saw that as an opportunity to, um, educate people about, about, you know, also the, the psychological, um, consequences. And we had someone who works with, um, the children, um, a, a psychologist who works with children come and testify as to, the impact that that has on, on a child for the rest of her life. And, uh, and that, I think, is, um, you know, not only, as I said, not only helpful to the case itself, but then also helpful to, um, to the greater public and also the, the court officials that are um, paying attention in this case.
0: How do you see the relationship that needs to be built from foreign aid and organizations that come in from a person that has been on the ground in Haiti and worked with Haitian organizations, what are these steps that we need to do if we're going to come in as foreigners and help Haiti, but not not do so in a manner that serves to the you know, keep them in a dependence? Sure. Yeah, yeah I mean, I think what well, part of the problem
1: is um, is the way funding is structured and funding cycles, right? So, so um, let's say. Ex government decides to pledge like a million dollars to um, to assist uh, Haiti in dealing with the gender-based violence program. Oftentimes, that is one that is it's allocated over a period of a year, and it all needs to be spent by the end of that year. Which doesn't, you know, like in terms of building sustainable institutions and sustainable, um, you know, long term long-term projects that could actually use that that money over a longer period of time like it doesn't actually help that in fact you know in my opinion it encourages sort of more wasteful spending um on projects that are less well thought out and less you know sort of sustainable in in a, in a long-term way and so and so i think one of the problems is is just the way the way that 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 funding is structured, and the way in which um, it is uh, it is expected to be spent. Um, I think another problem is is there, you know. In my opinion, if if money is going to be um, allocated to an institution or or to to even you know smaller organizations, there needs to be a lot closer of. A relationship between the funder and the, organi- and the organization, and so you know, it's not like having somebody on the ground for one year. And I mean, it's easily it's easier said than done. But but I mean, you know, capacity building is a very difficult thing, and and in order to really truly build sustainable capacity, there needs to be you know um, strong relationships of of trust um, built between. The institution and the person um helping and then and there also has to be a high level of cultural competency and ability to speak creole you know like there's there there are a lot of things i think that that um are sort of glossed over in the interest of efficiency or whatever it is and and that you know because because um that effort is not necessarily put into place in all of these situations. Um, you create a situation in which um, the the um, aid is not is not necessarily dispersed or used in 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 the best of ways. Um, a situation in which um, the dependency is created because because the money is there and and the the output of the receiving organization is not expected to be you know what i mean like like they mm-hmm. they're receiving uh, um money that is not necessarily accounted for in the right ways and then and then that that ruins it for the next time you know where um you know it seems as though that money is going to to keep coming and 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 that's actually not the case you know because funders too are fickle, you know, like right. in, in the couple of years after the earthquake, yes, you know, people, people were willing to, um, to donate large amounts of money. And at this point it's three years after the earthquake, um, Haiti has faded. And, you know, a lot of these organizations have moved on to something else. And so, so how do you account then for, um, for this bust cycle? You know, like the boom was in the couple of years afterwards. Right. Now we're, we're in this, this other stage and, and, um, and, you know, some, some might say we're worse off because, because the, the community based structures that people had in place before to help one another and to, you know, um, work together to support one another have been eroded by, um, by the introduction of this other dynamic of, of need and, um and, you know, emergency help and all of that.
0: In terms of programs that are specifically targeted at helping women and helping their economic status and their social status in terms of small projects, for instance, microloans to women and so forth, which did you believe caused the most impact?
1: Um, I think the projects where... um, Women are are trained in in a skill, you know, like sewing and those kinds of things. Like those seem to be the most um, helpful because not only are you are you you know teaching other women a skill and also building community through that, but but they but they are able to sort of parlay that into their own small businesses later. So so I found that to be to be really um, helpful, and there have been you know the. Some women's groups did try to do a kind of um uh like a microcredit group where each person put in a certain number of mo- a certain amount of money for a week and that that i saw thought was was of of limited um of limited uh, uh effectiveness and that's only because you know the the group needs to be really well structured and, and there needs to be really good accountability um, structures in place in order to, um, to make that a a useful um, mechanism. But, but I, I would say that, you know, out of all the the different projects that I've seen, I think, I think the ones where um, women are given um, are given skills are also helped, you know, with, with the finance piece of it, you know, like saving money and how to, how to um, uh, in, like, reinvest in their business and all of that, that the, those kinds of, um, of initiatives are good. And I know Foncoze is a community bank um, that uh, invests in a lot of smaller projects and, and I think these microcredit type of ventures.
0: Now, we are, I think, four years after the earthquake in uh, January 12, 2010, and the...
1: Oh, right before I said three, sorry.
0: (laughs) Oh, no, that's fine. (laughs) But Haiti is still feeling the effects of the earthquake. There is still, I think, more than 100,000 internally displaced persons, and the camps are still there. Now, did the women's rights movement get a setback? Because before the earthquake, it, there was uh, the National Dialogue on Violence Against Women, which is, was an official advisory body established in 2004, and the leader was Danielle Majolet. And in the mid-2000s, there was a very prominent women's rights groups and advisory body and a women's mis- ministry. And now after the earthquake with the uphills and the uh, lack of infrastructure, I guess, do you think that Haiti is moving forward or backward in terms of women's rights and how they see women?
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think, um, I'm not sure whether, um, the rate of violence has gone down at all, but what I can say, um, is that people's consciousness of the issue has, um, significantly increased. And, um, and women, um, even just during the time that I was there, you uh, were increasingly um, willing to step forward and talk about um, what had happened and there was there was uh, less less of a, of a, a desire to to bury that and not you know not prosecute or not speak out about it and so and so while, while I couldn't necessarily um, say that, that the level of violence is going down. I, I think that it is, it is, um, significant that women's consciousness themselves of, of their rights and their, um, and their ability to, um, to come forward has improved. And I do think, you know, it, it is now a, an issue that everybody talks about, you know, it, it is on people's radars. Whereas before, I don't think that it was, it was something that, that necessarily commanded that much, you know, sort of public attention. Now, I think it's, it is one that, you know, you hear about on the radio, um, and, and, and even men talk about it and, you know, we, um, we, uh, see men also, um, speaking out about it and wanting to support in other ways, um, I mean that's that I know anecdotally more than you know through through numbers, but I do know that that because of the the amount of of attention that was brought to the issue after the earthquake and you know through radio programs and through um, the um, the petitions that were that were filed in in um, these international arenas as well as you know the number of cases in the in the courts and all these efforts at the national level to um, to reform the, the penal code. I think all of those things sort of come together to show that, that there is, there has been some progress now. Um, I don't, so I would say it's moved forward. I wouldn't say that it's regressed. I mean, there still is a far way to, you know, there's a long way to go, but, Mm -hmm. but I, I think that, you know, for, in my, in my opinion, there has been progress and, um, and, you know, it would be, it would be unfortunate to say that, um, that there hasn't been any progress because, you know, all of these efforts have led somewhere. You know, I mean, right. clear, clearly there is a long way to go. There is a lot of dysfunction within the Haitian justice system. There's still a lot of dysfunction in, um, you know, in the domestic situations. But, um, you know, efforts are being made to address that. And, you know, I don't think we can say that much for ourselves here either in the U.S. We're not.
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> so it looks like we are moving forward, slowly but forward. Well, that's my that's my characterization of things,
1: I think. I would say so.
0: Thank you very much for your time, Mina. That was Mina Jagnath, who was a legal fellow and coordinator of the Rape Accountability and Prevention Project at the Beruze des Avocats International, a Haitian grassroots organization from May 2011 until September 2012, and currently works at the Community Justice Project of Florida Legal Services in Miami. Some of her articles on Haiti can be read at alternet.org and truthout.org. Alternet is all one word, and truthout has a hyphen between truth and out. Today's episode of Gravity is sponsored by Buddy Brewing. Buddy Brewing is a young experimental pico brewery building a reputation in New York City's Lower East Side. They make bold, flavorful beers that defy style norms and exceed most beer drinkers' expectations of what can be made on an apartment balcony. You won't find their beer in New York City bars just yet, but you can keep track of their activities and upcoming tastings at BuddyBrewing.com. Thank you for listening to Gravity. I hope this interview has been informative and you will join us for our next interview with Mark McTarras, working on the ground in Timor-Leste to discuss issues of international food security.